there, I'm your host, Kanye Aline, and thank you for tuning in to The Fly Behind the Wall, a podcast created to change the narrative about the realities of life in the United States prisons and jails. My goal is to return the systematic destruction of American lives back to the public conversation. Welcome to the Fly Behind the Wall, and thank you so much for joining me again. Today, I'm going to do a part two to the politics behind the wall. I mean, part one, we talked about sort of the internal politics behind the wall, but today I'm going to talk about the broader politics that impact our criminal justice system. And I mean, quite frankly, as I've continued to research this, It just seems uglier and uglier every layer that I unpeel. So join me behind the wall. So last episode, we kind of talked about internal politics behind the wall. In this episode, I really just want to discuss sort of the overarching politics, right? So Depending on the structure of your organization, you may work directly for the Department of Corrections, or you may be contracted, you may be outsourced, you know, you may even work for one of the private companies, whether it's Corizon or Prison Health Services or whatever it is these days. Um, Either way, there are layers of politics that play into that, right? So you know, the government or your city or your state may be contributing money to whichever organization that is sort of providing services to your inmate population. Um, On all levels, though, uh, there is a significant amount of politics and lobbying lobbying and uh, activity that goes on in the back end to one, keep the officials in place who are in place, two, to keep contracts in place, right? So um, whether it be trying to get, you know, one of the private companies getting a long-term contract to provide health services, or it be, you know, something prearranged, something that they got in writing through legislation, long story short, politics that impact the wall are very significant. Um, I mean, so the significance, I don't want to gloss over, um, because it's just overwhelming, you know, um, so digging, digging and more digging. I think one of the things I really want to talk about today is privatization, right? Um, and that's really a very ugly side of prison, Um, so when prisons are private, they run very differently than public prisons. Um, the focus is profit and not necessarily on like standards of care and conditions of confinement or even inmate well-being for that matter. It's almost like, what's that? I found this really cool timeline on online, um, by Mother Jones, which was like a brief history of America's private prison industry. It chronicles everything from 
how how we started holding immigration detainees to the shenanigans of the Corrections Corporation of America, the CCA, and GEO, um, the nation's two largest private prison companies that control a combined 75% for the of the for-profit prison market in the United States. In 1986, a federal judge ordered Tennessee to stop admitting inmates due to its overcrowded prisons. The CCA offers unsuccessfully to pay $250 million, $250 million for a 99-year lease on the state's entire prison system. So we're going to pay you $250 million for a lifetime of this situation. In 87, the CCA was... They they went public saying its facilities were designed and, you know, built pretty much with these electronic surveillances that, you know, were meant to operate larger prisons with, quote unquote, less staff than the public sector would have ever needed. The translation here is adding to the bottom line and ignoring the value that adequate staffing adds to the corporate to the correctional environment just it just don't matter like i mean and so as the years progressed is you know pretty much more of the same more legislation and task force to do everything but nothing but fuel the prison boom and like it's just it's crazy so in 1998 the cca becomes a real estate investment trust for quote-unquote tax purposes they raised $447 million for a prison buying spree. From 1990 to 2014, the number of prison prisoners sentenced to one year or more skyrocketed from 676,000 to 1.3 million state inmates, adding 175,000 inmates to private federal prisons, essentially. With privatization came an uptick of violence and escapes in Ohio, for example. Upon further investigation, they found inexperienced and poorly trained guards. The CCA had taken taken on a maximum security inmate at a facility designed for a medium security population. So essentially, we're going to take everybody and anybody because we all about the profit. We are not about safety, security. Like, we just... This is just another drop in the bucket, right? Meanwhile, you have officers, you have staff all being jeopardized because they're focused more on their profits. So let me just highlight here that prison security has different levels and characteristics, right? So inmates are placed in these levels based on a point system um, that usually includes like your criminal history, their history of incarceration, any history of violence, um, the severity of their current crime, any disciplinary history, any history of escape, their education level, their age, etc. I mean, of course, there there are always you know additional factors that play come into play at the time of being designated and you know sort of put in whichever housing bucket they're gonna get put in, right? So. You you take into advantage also any security risk group involvement, right? So if they have any gang affiliations, 
you know, that comes into play as well as if they had a co-defendant, right? And any other element that they would think is significant in making that decision on where this person should be housed. So in federal prisons, you have a maximum security, medium, and minimum security. And maximum security houses, you know, inmates with a, with a violent criminal history, or they've typically committed some sort of violent crime while incarcerated. These inmates also need the most security and pose a threat to other inmates, officers, civilian staff, and society as a whole, just in general. Um, the doors of a maximum security prison are much heavier. They have a window to see out of and a slot, AKA the trap, right? For their food trays. They're typically locked in 23 hours per day and escorted pretty much everywhere they need to go by all levels of security, you know. So custody on many levels are usually involved in the movement of a maximum security inmate. And that's usually while they're being videotaped. One other thing I want to mention is that with the maximum security prison, those are usually the ones that you see with the gun tower. You see the walls are just reinforced or you see layers of sort of the um, barbed wire or razor fencing outside, right? With And one other thing is typically in a maximum security, you have probably the highest level of staffing that you'll see in a correctional environment. In minimum security, you have um, inmates who are kind of housed in cells. They have opportunity to leave as they are allowed to go to facility-based treatment. They aren't escorted by levels of security like with maximum security, um, but they those those facilities typically do have double fencing as opposed to the triple, triple fences. And they too are usually either armed perimeter vehicles um, that will circle the prison night and day. And they usually have pretty high staffing levels, such as that of the maximum security. Um, there's also the minimum security, which, you know, these inmates are confined behind the walls. However, the, they're usually not convicted of any nonviolent offenses, and they live in this dormitory-style housing. You know, yes, there might be fewer fences and lower levels of staffing, but um, safety and security is always, you know, important, right? So low security housing or low security prison, they house also inmates in this dormitory style. They too are surrounded by fences, but they lack the traditional spools of like razor wire that you'll see at a higher security level. Um, violence is also minimum at these prisons and, you know, People make they make the most of those situations. Those dudes are usually don't usually have much more time on the books, um, and there's usually not a lot of drama in those facilities. Not to say it doesn't happen, but it's usually not as much as in uh, maximum security or even in a minimum secure uh, medium security. Um, and then there's this unclassified, aka sort of this administrative security. Um, now. Th that that quite really just varies because that unclassified really is one of those sort of in between spots, right? Like, so maybe somebody's being deported or there's a they're being detained for pre-trial pre um, activities. Perhaps maybe they have a serious medical a, a, a serious medical condition or a serious or, or they may be seriously mentally ill. Um, this is more of really one of those in-between 
we have a specific mission with this particular inmate and we're just going to hold them there for a little while. Um, but let's just jump back to the privatization for a second. In 2004, as prison occupancy rates dropped, the Prison Realty Trust almost went bankrupt and the CCA stock nearly went from $150 a share to 19 cents a share. The CCA immediately dropped the trust and restructured. By 2007, Rep. Ted Strickland, a Democrat from Ohio, introduced the Private Prison Information Act, which would require private prisons holding federal inmates to comply with the Freedom of Information Act requests. However, it died with at least seven similar bills opposed by the CCA and GEO. So, of course, they don't want people digging into their books and wanting to know how these inmates are being cared for and what's happening. I mean, I'm not going to say that they're not going to keep records because everything has to be recorded somewhere. But what they're saying is we don't want to give the courts any of our information for it to be scrutinized. So over the years, through ACL, ACLU involvement, deaths of prisoners and a myriad of lawsuits yielded additional legislation. In 2012, the CCA became the first private prison company to purchase a state facility buying, a state facility. They bought Ohio's Lake Erie Correctional Institution as part of a privatization plan proposed by the governor at the time and supported by his corrections chief, CCA director, Gary Moore. Okay, so can we see how this... This, this this is working, right? So you're telling me that the governor has now proposed this whole buyout or whatever, and the corrections chief happens to also be the director of the CCA at the time. All right, great. All of this, all this does is just highlight how incestuous and compromised prison politics and politics can be when folks in power have conflicts of interest. In 2013, the CCA offers to buy prisons in 48 states in exchange for 20-year management contracts. The same year, a GEO-operated youth facility in Mississippi where staff sexually abuse minors is described by a judge as a cesspool of unconstitutional and inhumane acts and conditions. And conditions. All right, so you get this facility, right? And you can't even manage what's happening in the facility. You cannot manage the population. And clearly, are there some standards that these employees should be working by that you got a judge calling it a cesspool of unconstitutional and inhumane rights and conditions? I mean, you got staff sexually abusing minors I mean, this doesn't specify whether it's correction staff or it's, you know, civilian staff, but any staff, because on a whole, we're all responsible for these inmates and their care and, and what happens to them while they're in our custody. So at another, in 2015, another Mississippi facility, there was a 24-year-old CCA employee who was killed during a riot over prison complaints about poor food, inadequate medical care, and disrespectful guards. 
The following year, CCA converts back to a real estate investment trust, as does GEO. Okay, so that's the game we're playing now. As I fast forward to 2018 and dig through CNN's money archive, it seems that we can thank our president, Donald Trump, for our private prisons appearing to be entering a golden age. The stocks of the two biggest private prison operators, CoreCivic, formerly known as CCA, and GEO Group, have doubled since Election Day. So CoreCivic is up 140% since Trump won in November, last November, and GEO Group has risen 98%. Trump has made sweeping promises to crack down on crime and illegal immigration. I mean, it seems that his rhetoric has likely translated into more people behind bars, and that means more profits for our private prisons. President Trump had vowed to get really bad guys out of this country and at a rate that nobody's ever seen. All right. With that said, the Department of Homeland Security is already hiring 10,000 new immigration officers and 5,000 more border control agents. On top of that, DHS intends to ask for money to fund additional detention facilities. Our good friends, Core Civic and Geo Group, have several beds currently available that could be used for these undocumented immigrants. Really? All right. Private prisons currently housing roughly 8% of America's 1.5 federal and state prison population. As we move to scrap Obama-era guidance, the Bureau of Prisons' flexibility to manage the federal inmate population based on capacity needs has been restored. Right, so we want to scrap Obama's uh, prison reform efforts and move towards what exactly? Criminal justice was always a priority issue for President Obama. Federal prison population fell during President Obama's term a distinction no other president since Jimmy Carter has had. Among other things, he has overseen a Justice Department initiative called the Smart on Crime Initiative that emphasizes lighter sentences for those convicted of lower level crimes and uses his executive clemency power more frequently than any other modern chief executive. Overall, Obama granted clemency to 1,927 individuals, a figure that includes 1,715 commutations and 212 pardons. That's the highest total for any president since Harry S. Truman, who granted clemency to 2,044, including 1,913 pardons and 118 communications sorry, commutations and 13 remissions during his early eight years in office. 
during his nearly eight years in office. Just so we are clear, um, clemency refers to multiple forms of presidential mercy. The two most common are commutations, which completely or partially reduce sentences for those in prison or on community supervision, and pardons, which forgive past crimes and restore civil rights. Two less common forms are remissions, which reduce financial penalties associated with convictions, and respites, which are temporary reprieves that are usually granted to inmates for medical reasons. All right, so um, this Smart on Crime initiative, let's talk about that a second. So at the direction of the Attorney General in 2013, the Department of Justice launched a comprehensive review of the criminal justice system in order to identify reforms that would ensure federal laws are enforced more fairly and in an era of reduced budgets more efficiently. Five goals were identified as part of this review. One was to ensure finite resources are devoted to the most important law enforcement priorities. Two was to promote fairer enforcement of laws and alleviate disparate impacts of the criminal justice system. Three was to ensure just punishments for low-level nonviolent convictions. Four, to bolster prevention and reentry efforts to determine or to deter crime and reduce recidivism. And five was to strengthen protections for vulnerable populations. So what we're saying here is that we want to at least try to help. We want to identify the real reasons or the real drivers behind crime. We want to make sure that when we're enforcing law, that we're doing it equally across the board, that we're not in any way using the criminal justice system to unfairly incarcerate any one population over another. I mean, overall, it sounds like it's an initiative that could do good work for Americans, all Americans, not just for a particular set of Americans. But let's go back for a second. So for right now, the tough on crime policies alongside sort of the comprehensive immigration reform has positioned Core Civic and the GEO Group for a period of sustained pro private time, right? So now they're in a position where people are saying, maybe we should consider privatization based on what has been presented. So here's the thing, right? If you're private, you don't need a union. That's usually non-unionized. You know, you're private. You got profits that you can incentivize people to make sure that you're hitting your targets. I mean, that's usually when you know, you make sure that people are keeping costs low, keep the costs down. And that way, when we get whatever revenue from the government and we got our operating costs, our bottom lines, just out, it looks good. I mean, as far as financing goes, you know, private prisons, they don't have the bureaucracy and all the red tape of like state and city facilities, right? Where you got to juggle what 
these different agendas and you got is the funding right and all no private companies they got their own little money set aside to do whatever they need to do and you know they they expand without much problems they expand without having a town hall meeting and all of the stuff that we go through in cities and states to do what we need to do um as far as like talent and inside advantage you know most of these private companies they get like retired wardens they get people who have real power you know through long-term relationships in in the system and they make sure that they get in contact with those people who've worked in the environment before even from a provider perspective you get paid more when you come from the private sector but they can afford to do that because they don't have to offset what they're paying you with these huge pensions and retirements and all this other stuff that you get from the state. You don't have no union dictating cost of living increases and all that. You just got rough, here's my talent. I'm gonna pay them what I'm gonna pay them. I don't have to factor in all these other benefits and all this other stuff that comes along with working with the city or state. I mean, and the other thing that you gotta acknowledge is that with the private industry, they have a little more agility, right? Like they can get themselves set up wherever and there's not like, like I said, all the bureaucracy, but most importantly, they make themselves disposable or available to our states and our cities who we're suffering with overcrowding. And here it is, they got space. Hey, don't worry about that. Let's negotiate how you can take the rest of those inmates that you can't house and put them into our private setting. We got this. We we got your back. Right. But here's the bottom line. Private prisons do not provide the same level of correctional services, programs, or resources. They do not save substantially on costs, and they do not maintain the same level of safety and security as in government-run facilities. I mean, there's other things that you got to be aware of, right? So you see what happened in Mississippi, in Ohio. Those are things that happen when you skimp on staffing, right? You skimp on training. I mean, one thing I could say coming from city and state is that the training, training, training. Everyone got training on everything because why? Safety and security is everyone's concern not just custody's concern. And as a civilian, you need to know how to respond in certain circumstances or certain situations. And you need to be confident in that exchange with whatever inmate you might have to interact with, right? Um, I think the other thing too is, so while private sounds good, at the end of the day, all they need is one bad situation to happen. All they need is one. And in that one single situation, public perception will be totally changed about that. I mean, you saw it in Youngstown, Ohio, they had all these escapes and stabbings and killings. I mean, literally, the CCA stock took a deep dive, right? But those are the things that they face. All right. We are living in a time when the government is incentivized to imprison its citizens. We've got Attorney General Jeff Sessions 
announcing that he wants federal law enforcement agencies to bust people with a little bit of weed, to order federal prosecutors to find ways to convict more immigrants. Sessions is looking for ways to provide more clients to private prisons that are contracted by the federal government. Anyone caught crossing the border without inspection will no longer just be charged with a misdemeanor and return to their country of origin. No, each will now be charged with a felony and be formally deported. I mean, requiring a week or up to 18 months of detention. Plans to increase the number of immigration judges threefold and prosecutors are officially underway. Sessions ordered prosecutors to begin charging anyone quote-unquote harboring three or more undocumented immigrants with felony harboring statutes. I mean, the translation here, a father with three family members can face years in prison for putting a roof over his family's head. The increase in prosecutions will lead to an increase in convictions. The GO Group and Core Civic Inc., lead the industry and have contracts with the federal government and specifically the Immigration and Customs Enforcement Agency. So as Attorney Jeff Sessions fills these private prisons, he is making money. According to his latest financial disclosures required by Congress dated December 23rd, 2016, he divested of other investments that were found to be in conflict and these disclosures, however, he also listed numerous Vanguard funds. And so, as, as it would be, right? Vanguard owns more private prison stock than any other investment management company. If he still owns these funds, Attorney General Sessions is making policy that he will financially profit from. So, I say all that to say... People, you know, the debate private versus public, mm, I don't know that there's really a debate, right? There's a fiduciary duty that you have when you are a public employee, when you work in the public sector. Public funds, taxpayer funds, there are rules and regulations. You shift to private, they can make whatever rules and regulations they want to make, whether they are in the best interest of the population or themselves and typically they will be in the best interest of themselves but you know what you think about it you decide where we stand on privatization of prisons versus keeping prisons and jails public No matter what David and Goliath situation you find yourself in, remember the words of Rosa Parks. You must never be fearful about what you are doing when it is right. I hope that I've given you enough to continue a healthy conversation about our incarcerated citizens. Thank you so much for listening as I continue to make my own slice of the world a little better. You've just listened to The Fly Behind the Wall, now available on iTunes, Anchor, Spotify, and other listening platforms. 
Be sure to subscribe, share, and write a review. Join me next time behind the wall.